We've got over 10,000 ball scribers, as we call them, which is just fantastic because you can you know, kind of count on that revenue. Um, you can see when it's coming in. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to create a bold, fun, and playful brand and the benefits of such a brand, what's involved in custom formulating personal care products, and the big lesson they learned after they thought they lost 1,000 packages during Valentine's Day. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify shipping. Did you know that you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home and print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates with certain carriers with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier account, or app required. This is included with your Shopify plan, so check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Today I'm joined by Adam Hendel from Ballsy. Ballsy makes men's personal care products for below the belt and was started in 2017 and based at Austin, Texas. Welcome, Adam. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Felix. Yeah, so I love the the genesis, the the beginning of your business because it's a business that actually started from a shower thought, right? Something that you <laughs> discovered in the shower. So tell us more about how you came up with the idea. What did you find out? Yeah, absolutely. It is one of those shower moment ideas about a shower product. Um, and it just so happened about, man, about four or five years ago now, the original idea um, was literally in the shower and just so happened to notice on that day how many different personal care products my, had, uh, my wife had. She basically had different products for every area of her body. And around that time, five years ago, there just wasn't a lot for men's personal care. It was like, here's your four-in-one or your five-in-one value wash. And a lot of the brands that were higher quality just weren't anything I related with. So it's really this kind of moment in the showers. Like, could there be like this bold, fun, playful brand that had high quality products that tackled an area of a guy's body um, that had been overlooked? And ball wash was the, uh, the first idea. It would literally like jumped out of the shower, Google search later, to my surprise and delight, no one had ever created a product called Ball Wash. And I guess I immediately thought to myself, either I'm a genius and there's some white space here or I'm absolutely out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of the start of the journey to, to answer that question. Got it. Now, this um, this idea of like, how do you apply, how do you how do you take this, this product and then have a bold, fun, and playful kind of messaging, branding, identity behind it? Well, why that approach? Like, why did you want to go with that approach? Like, a lot of people, first of all, the, the, the topic sometimes is taboo, right? People don't want to, don't want to be too blatant about what is their product, especially when it comes to like grooming products or men care products. What made you say, you know what, I'm going to just go out right out with it and make it both fun and playful. Yeah, I think for us, it's really a balance, right? It's bold, fun, and playful, but it's also backed up with um, high quality. Like everything that we do, um, you know, from the product quality itself and what we actually put in the ingredients to like the way that we present the brand um, is very, I would say, you know, top shelf or high quality. And I knew early on that if I was going to have products with, you know, over the top names like ball wash and nut rub, like we wanted to really back it up with some, you know, quality behind it because I didn't want this to be a joke while it is fun and playful and bold and attention getting. 
Um, it's not a joke. It's not something that we just, you know, say, haha, like this is just something silly. Uh, we really believe in the products and, you know, I'm not here to make a, you know, novelty brand. I'm here to make a lasting men's brand. Um, so I knew that balancing the humor to get people's attention, have fun, say, Hey, like we don't take ourselves seriously, but what we do is take our product seriously. And this is something that guys should pay attention to. So everything we do is really about balance. Right. This balance about not being gimmicky or, or being a novelty brand, like a one-off purchase, but it, it, did, it did benefit you in that it carried a lot of the marketing, right? That it was just like a, a product people wanted to, to talk about. That's a product people wanted to, to to share that was comfortable talking about it. But you also mentioned that it has to be backed by a, it's a, a good product where you'll, you'll get them in, but then they had to be... They had to, yeah, the, the, the users of the product actually have to get some benefit out of it. So they buy it again. They tell their friends about it, leave great reviews. How did you balance that in your, in your marketing though? How do you make sure that people, especially first time customers knew that this wasn't just, you know, again, a novelty brand, but actually, actually had um, efficacy behind it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what we lean forward with in, you know, paid social and just, you know, I guess top of funnel is the bold, playful aspect of the brand. And, you know, a lot of times just our products on a plain white background just are, are enough to get that attention and get that conversation going because of, of the naming conventions themselves. So we get a lot of people leaving comments, tagging friends, you know, starting a conversation, which leads to a lot of engagement. Uh, but once we get them in the door and they land on the site, uh, I mean, we spent a lot of time making sure that everything looked very polished and again, non-gimmicky. Um, and on the product pages, you know, we, we spend a decent amount of time explaining to the customer what is in the product and what makes them, you know, I guess, suited for that area of, of, of the guy's body, right? You know, whether that be essential oils or plant extracts or certain ingredients um, that help with irritation and chafing, we wanted to make sure that when the customer lands on that page, it's very clear, um, that this is a problem solution that, that we have, you know, presented to them. Um, and we've kind of evolved our product pages over time. Um, you know, I started at just like little text and bullet points, and now we've really built out the, the PD pages, uh, PDP pages with, um, you know, icons and images that make it really easy for a customer to understand what's in the product very quickly. Yeah, so that the marketing can be fun, can be bold, but it sounds like as they get closer to the to the product, to purchasing, to getting the product, to obviously using it, the more kind of serious, or not serious, but like you 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 emphasize more of like the serious benefits of the product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we obviously lean into ballsy and what makes us different because it's really hard to stand out and, you know, especially in paid um, when you're trying to get customers attention and they're just being bombarded. So that's definitely, you know, one side of the brand, but it's really important that once we get them in the door that they understand like what these products are for and why they're going to benefit from them, especially if you plan on keeping them around. Got it. Okay, so you first uh, had this uh, this this again shower thought, this idea for a business. You went to search if, to see if there's anyone else out there that's creating a product similar to this. What were the first steps once you realized that there might be some some potential here to actually create a product around this? Yeah. So actually, my first step was to figure out how to make body wash myself. Um, so a bunch of YouTube videos and just research later, I quickly realized I'm a better marketer than chemist and figured I should find somebody to do this for me. Um, and that led me down the long, hard path of finding a manufacturer, 
um, who would do a very small run for me. I literally put aside $5,000 um, to start Ballsy. Um, and if you know anything about product manufacturing, that is a very small amount of money. I mean, typically MOQs when I called uh, manufacturers were 5,000 units. So it just didn't make sense out of the gate for a lot of manufacturers. Um, but I called around for about six months and just kept knocking on doors. And I found this amazing manufacturer uh, based in Michigan who is more family run and uh, specialized in natural products. And after about a 10 minute phone call and me explaining the brand, they're like, we're completely in. They just love the idea. Um, and it just felt like they were a perfect partner. They weren't just treating, you know, the brand as, um, just a customer. They were treating it as a partner that wanted to help, you know, really like develop great products and develop the brand with us. Um, and they're still our main manufacturer to date. Um, so that definitely paid off. It was, it was, it was a long six months of trying to call people and like wondering if I could ever get this off the ground, but I really wanted to stick to that budget. And um, in the long run, just knocking it off on enough doors paid off. Yeah, six months is definitely a good amount of time to put into kind of the first step, right? Like you're you're dedicated enough to say, let me try this out for six months and try to get a manufacturer on board. Especially like you, you said, most of them are going to say no to a $5,000 order. Now, what, what do you think made them take a chance on you? Because I think there's going to be other people out there that don't have that much money. They don't want to put too much into it. They cannot put too much into that first production run, especially when they're just trying to get this off the ground. What are some key things that you found that, that you recognize as ways for you to stand out? And again, to have a manufacturer take a chance on producing something for you at such a low minimum order quantity. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to clarify too. I mean, we could have done off the shelf, you know, white label and just put a, put a label on it and called it, you know, ball wash or whatever. But it was really important again for us to find somebody who's going to custom formulate and take, you know, some of their experience and my ideas and bring them together, which is really why, you know, I spent so much time on that, you know, aside from the budget. But I think that's really important when finding that first key partner for any business is finding that person that understands the brand is excited about the brand and is, you know, willing to kind of work on it with you. Now, you know, back to your, your original question, I think why they were excited is because, you know, a lot of personal care brands, they're getting pitched a lot of personal care brands, um, you know, all the time. And they have a lot of great companies, but I think what was exciting to them was it was just different, right? We were taking a different approach uh, to men's personal care, both in terms of brand and what we wanted to accomplish. Um, and they thought it'd be fun and something that just excited them. So I think it was really just a matter of us talking to enough people to find that right person that was excited about the idea as much as we were. Um, and luckily they were the right size to where they could work quickly with us and didn't have to have, you know, huge budget requirements. So I think it's basically just came down to a matter of persistence, right? I think a lot of people give up after making a lot of, you know, first calls and it doesn't go their way. I know I was super frustrated after a few months and, you know, almost thought about not moving forward. Um, but you never know, you know, who's going to be on the line for the next call. And, and um, that just happened to be the perfect partner for us. Yeah. So now when you are working with a manufacturer, especially one that specializes or, or creates uh, personal care products, how do you work with them? Like what's involved? Because you mentioned custom formulation. Like what's that process like? 
Yeah, for us, it all starts with a, a product brief, right? What is the you know general idea of that product, whether it's a wash or a lotion, a cologne, you name it. Um, what is going to be different about this product? Maybe it's the form factor. You know, for example, we have a solid cologne called Nut Rub. Um, a lot of people have never heard of solid colognes. You know, traditional colognes are spray on. Um, so that's, you know, a, a differentiating factor there. Or Ball Guard, which is a lotion that dries as a powder instead of just being a powder. So like what makes that product different, right? What's going to make it exciting for a consumer and what's going to help it solve, uh, you know, a pain point that they maybe have um, prior. And then once you get that kind of twist and edge to the product, then it's all about just kind of fine tuning, you know, looking at different ingredients and, and things that you think would help out. A lot of times rely on, you know, obviously the chemists because they know a lot more uh, about individual ingredients and benefits than we do, but it's like, Hey, we want these qualities in, um, in, in the product. And then the last thing is like, what do we want it to smell like? And we go through a ton of different fragrances. We have a fragrance house that sends us a bunch of different samples and it's kind of taking all of those things over the course of, you know, six months to almost a year on certain products um, and putting them all together and just doing a lot of rounds of iteration and sampling. And uh, you know, it typically takes a little bit longer than what you'd like, but we found that the more effort and time that we put in up front, you know, we're always just so much more happier with the outcome on the, on the back end. Yeah, so six months to a year for some of these products. Like, talk to us about how many, how many iterations did it take, especially for the the the, the first ball wash product. How long? How many iterations did it take? How did you know it was ready for the market? Yeah, uh, ball wash took us about six months um, of of iterations and just going back and forth. And you know, <laughs> I think you're your own worst enemy. To where you know you could always say it could be a little bit better, or you know, let's tweak one more thing, and you could just kind of go nuts doing that. Um, but for me, at the end, um, I think. I had to ask myself, does it check all the boxes of the original product brief? And are other people outside of me excited? So testing with friends and family and showing them the product and getting, you know, real world feedback pretty early on uh, is always something that we did out of the gate, something that we do now, uh, which has been really helpful. Otherwise, it's just hard to say, like, when's this end point, right? So you really got to kind of set up, up realistic guidelines and stick to your product briefs and, you know, listen to, you know, your gut and then the people around you. Yeah. So testing with uh, friends and family, I think this is an important stage for a lot of people, especially when they don't have any customers yet to test this against. And that's really their first sounding board or the people in their network. How do you make sure you get the right kind of feedback where they're not just like, oh, this is amazing because they're, you know, they, they love you, they're your friends and family. How do you make sure you're getting the right kind of feedback that actually leads you in the right direction where, you know, the greater market will also, you know, have similar feedback? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's something you always got to be you know, cognizant of, but we just tested with a bunch of different friends um, and family members. It wasn't just like one or two, um, you know, we just basically said like, shoot it to us straight. Like, we're you know, we're starting a business or, and we really need your feedback. So if it's not good or, you know, be specific about why you don't like it. And, you know, to that point, you know, I'd follow up with each customer or not each customer, each, you know, person that tried it um, to ask them specific questions. You know, did they like the the way it lathered? Did they like the fragrance? If not, like, you know, what did they not like about it? So I think it's asking just more pointed questions to what they did or did not like about the product instead of saying, here's my, you know, here's ball wash. Like, what do you think? Um, and just hoping that they're going to give you honest feedback. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we had, we had definitely friends and family that went both ways on it. Like, are, you know, is this, is this serious? Is this not serious? You know, you guys are crazy. I love it. So I think just getting as, as many people's feedback as possible is really important out of the gate. 
Yeah, I was thinking that must, must have led to some interesting conversations with friends and family that you might have never had before when you're talking yeah. about feedback for this kind of product. And I, and I, you know, one thing there too is, you know, I did run into some friends and family that weren't, didn't think it was their greatest idea. Um, you know, and that's hard to take as somebody's trying to start a company. And, uh, you know, I was glad that they gave me that feedback, but like, that's when it comes down to your own conviction for the product and, you know, just wanting to keep going. Um, but that was something that was hard early on. And I'm sure a lot of people face, it's not just like, friends and family saying, Hey, this is great. But like, sometimes it's the other, the other way. Right. Um, and it's really that conviction of the product and making sure that, you know, you really want to launch the company, um, that gets you to, you know, step one, I guess. Mm. What can you, can you recall some impactful changes to the product or you, or even the marketing that came out of the feedback from friends and family? You know, my wife has been, um, you know, a huge sounding board for, for ballsy the whole way through. Right. Um, we have a huge female base of, of customers that, you know, buy the product for their guys, whether it be their husband, boyfriend, you name it. Um, and, you know, going back to the balance thing, right? Like we want this to be the brand to be very fun and approachable, but we never want it to be like bro or macho or not, you know, inclusive. We want everyone to feel that the brand is like a great uniter and the uniter is humor, right? And, and fun, and just being ballsy and like what you do in life. And so like I've, my, my wife had just been an amazing soundboard to kind of get that female perspective, especially early on when we didn't have a lot of customers to talk to, um, to see how she viewed it and to make sure like I wasn't, you know, didn't have any blind spots when it came to, you know, the copy or just the way that the product looked. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting situation that you're in where it's a, you mentioned a huge female customer base that's buying the product for uh, the end user who, who's who's a man. How does that change your your marketing? Because maybe someone out there might not have this similar situation, but they might have a huge customer base that's buying a product for some different end user. How do you think about how your marketing should be positioned when that's that's the case? Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, I was very naive to, um, the female customer base when we first launched. Like I, I figured, you know, we'd have some female customers, but it wasn't until we launched our first Facebook ads and we had a bunch of different ad sets set up that I just, that ad set for female just blew up. Like it just had a much higher ROAS and just got me thinking more and more. Like you know, there's a lot of females that just buy personal care products for their guys or for their household. Um, and that was something that we had to like really come to grips with quickly and pay attention, pay attention to in our marketing and some things that we've done around that, um, and have really helped the business are around gifting, right. And, and really leaning into these gifting moments. And for us, that is of course, uh, Christmas, but also Valentine's day. And I think Valentine's day for us, and again, going back to my wife with, you know, a female perspective, you know, I was talking to her, about this early on, like, how do you get a female to buy ball wash and nut rub and sack spray for their guy for Valentine's day, where it doesn't seem like here, this, you, I, here's these products, you have an issue. <laughs> like, it's more like here are these products to help you, right? Like it shouldn't be like, Hey, like you smell, take care of yourself. It's like, Hey, I got these really fun products for you. And kind of the idea around that was to 
package all three of our products together in a you know giftable set and we use the slogan i'm nuts about you um so it's this fun like gifting thing we're like hey like she can give it to her her guy and it's i'm nuts about you and he laughs and then he opens it up and then we explain you know why these products are also great and then around uh christmas we do another box that says keep your jewels jolly so it's all about leading with the fun and like getting people to have this excitement of like, what is this? And then, you know, like I said, inside the boxes, and this isn't something that we did uh, out of the gate, but it, when you open up the flap of the box, it talks about each product and why they're great. Because I think early on, you know, people got this and they're like, oh, this is kind of like a novelty or, or you know, a gag. Um, but we quickly realized that we need to do a really good job when that gift receiver gets it explaining to them like, yeah, well, this is fun, but like, here's why you need this. And here's why these are going to be great for you. Mm, got it. Now, so you mentioned Christmas and Valentine's day are, are these big holidays that have led to big influxes of sales for you by bundling and kidding together the popular products that you're selling. What else is involved here though? Because I'm sure it's not just about, you know, putting together a collection or a package that they can buy. Like, how do you really lean into this gifting that you had mentioned? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, I would say the vast majority really is on these bundling and kidding um, by using these gift boxes that are very much themed for the holiday. For us, it's like making this no-brainer gift purchase of under fifty, like fifty dollars. Like, how can we package this up to where any customer can make this very quick decision and feel good about a gift? Right. I think a lot of brands they obviously lean into holidays, right, and they put sales together and they'll maybe do a content shoot around products and it be themed that way. But like we actually make a product in a box that is themed specifically for that holiday. So it feels a bit more special and unique and something that, you know, you can only get during those holidays. And ever since we've done that, it has just unlocked tremendous growth around um, those key gifting moments uh, where the first holiday that we had it, like we saw a lot of success um, not having this kind of gift box or, you know, a holiday themed gift box. Um, but since then we've, it's just been astronomical um, growth. And we've also started to roll out holiday themed versions of our, of our ball wash, right? They'll have like limited edition scents. So uh, ball wash for Christmas basically is, is like a peppermint and pine scent. Um, so that's done just really well. And then I think, you know, a step further that it's really just speaking to, uh, you know, the female customer in the ad sets, right. And in, in the ad copy. So it's like, here's a gift for the both of you. Like, you know, or here we've, we've solved Valentine's day for you, you know, or stop giving the same lame gift. It's like, what's the problem that usually people have around gifting and how are you solving it for them? And we speak very directly to that in those ads. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So Valentine's day and Christmas were the two big holidays you talked about. Are there other ways that you encourage gifting throughout the rest of the year? Um, Father's Day, you know, specifically for a wife giving it to, or, you know, her husband is another kind of, um, gifting moment for us. But outside of that, um, those are really the three kind of key moments. Yeah. One thing I've heard works really well for products that are giftable are these kind of like lists, right? The gift list. Is that something that you focus your attention on? Um, we've organically show up on a lot of just gift lists. Um, and that, that has worked pretty well. And we, we, you know, since we've started to grow, we've got a PR team that tries to get us on, uh, on a few of those. Um, so yeah, if you can end up on those lists, um, it's definitely, you know, a net positive. 
Yeah. Now, speaking of Valentine's Day, you had mentioned that one, one big setback, one scary moment in your business was when you had a thousand packages go missing uh, over Valentine's Day due to a distribution center losing power. Tell us more about what happened in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll say the, you know, gifting is great for us, but the downside is if you get in the way of a customer receiving their Valentine's Day gift, it's, you know, it's a bad spot to be where Christmas, you know, they have a lot of gifts, uh, you know, to give, but if it doesn't show up before Valentine's Day, like typically they don't have another gift to, to send. So it's a very stressful time for both customers and of course a brand trying to make sure that they get products, um, you know, in hand before that date. But unfortunately as a brand, you know, is quickly as you can ship them out. Some, sometimes things are just out of your, out of your hands and mother nature being definitely one of those things. Um, so it was two years ago, we were leading up to, um, Valentine's day. I think we were about, you know, 10 days out and we were shipping out. I mean, it was, it was over a thousand packages and we're getting closer and closer to Valentine's day. And we're getting more and more customer service emails saying like, where's my package? And we're like, it went out. And basically we're looking at all of these tracking links and they just, where they would update once and they would just stop. And we're just like, where are all these things going? You know, we didn't know if they were lost or, you know, what happened to them. And uh, our fulfillment center at the time couldn't really give us any answers. So we just started trying to do right by the customer and we just started, you know, sending them another box. So we sent out, uh, you know, roughly a thousand more boxes to people um, to get them there on time and expedited shipping and, you know, you name it. Um, and come to find out basically a USPS fulfillment or distribution center in, in Michigan lost power and somehow <laughs> they didn't relay that to anyone that, you know, would be privy to us. And uh, they sat in that distribution center for like three to four days and then it got super backed up, obviously. So all of those products got delayed. It didn't make it for Valentine's day. So again, we did the right thing. We made sure everyone got it, but it was a very costly you know, uh, a mistake to happen. And especially something that's just kind of outside of your hands as a business owner, which is always the toughest. Yeah. I think that that instinct though is something that's an important lesson to take away about doing right by your customers, right? That, yeah, it was costly mistake, but who knows what a thousand angry customers, right? Could have, could have led to, might've been even more costly than that. So what, what, what am happening with those packages? Did you get them back? Did, did the customers receive two packages? Yeah, I mean, most of the customers received two packages and, you know, a lot of them were super nice and said, you know, that they send them back or pay for them. And, you know, we just let the customers have it and hope that, it, you know, that brand kind of equity is built and then they come back for more uh, down the road. Makes sense. You also, and you know, speaking of uh, being being tight on this kind of money, one thing you mentioned was around this idea, because you're you're bootstrapping the business when you're bootstrapping and when you're starting it, this idea around how to make sure that you actually can manage your cash flow. So were there any of the kind of scary moments during the growth of the business where cash was tight? Yeah, I mean, as a bootstrap business, um, you know, cash flow is always top of mind, and especially for us around Valentine's Day and Christmas, we go very hard during those moments. So we basically take everything that we've made um, previously in the year, and then we take out an inventory loan, and then we put it all on red, basically, and hope that it you know comes back uh, you know in spades and. 
we've been doing that now for uh, about three years and it's done really well for us. I mean, we can really count on those gifting customers. Um, and we've proved out that segment of the business, but it's always scary, right? It's like, is this going to be the year where, you know, it dries up and we've got all this money tied up in inventory. Um, so that's always scary. And, you know, just honestly, first, you know, thinking back to like our first POs, like my first order was for, you know, 500 units. And then we sold out of that. And then it was like, all right, let's do 2,500 units. Like the POs just kept getting bigger. And as they scaled up, like, so did kind of the fear of like, what happens if these don't sell? And we're like holding this big PO that or uh, invoice that we can't pay. But, uh, you know, you just got to believe in the brand and continue to push forward. And that's what we've done. Yeah, you know, putting putting a lot of a, a big bet on inventory you know, is definitely scary. Having all your your cash tied up, are there ways that you've been able to be kind of intelligent about what kind of inventory to 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 hold? I mean, we've basically just used history, right? Um, and looked back and said, all right, we've sold out every single year that we've that we've during these you know four months, and so we look back on inventory. We look back on what we've sold. And we say, how much do we think we can increase it based on kind of what we saw in our cost per acquisition and, you know, remaining profitable on those purchases and just add some to it. And then we look at cash flow in general and say, you know, how much can we reasonably afford without putting everything at risk? And somewhere in the middle of there, that's kind of what we go with. And, um, you know, nothing that scientific to it. It's just using history and, you know, risk tolerance and um, using, you know, past market kind of signals to forecast what we're going to do this year. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. And I think one, one approach that you, you seem to be taking like a, at least a testing and methodical approach to is around the, the advertising. You had mentioned around different ad sets, different creative, different targeting. Talk to us about that. What's been the strategy for how you've been uh, running your, your, your paid media? Yeah, paid media is a huge lever um, in our business, Facebook and Instagram really being the primary drivers. Um, and, and really early on, as I was mentioning before, you know, most of our ads were, were, were male focused and we had one female ad set. Um, and that one really seemed to pan out, you know, very quickly. And it kind of started to inform the rest of our ads and campaigns moving forward. So I think that's just like a very small example of, doing a bunch of tests, maybe some things that you didn't think about and you never know, you might get surprised and that becomes kind of your main, your main spend. And that's the way it's been for us. Um, so using that as our, like our first campaign example, we've really done that moving forward, right? And that whether that's testing different copy, different types of creative, whether that be just static images, video, UGC, um, and pairing that up with different copy, different incentives in terms of, you know, different promotions um, to get customers in the door and get that first conversion. But it's really just about having, you know, a decent library of both copy and creative content. And then for us, it's just trying different kind of combinations of, of both of those and working on a, you know, a, a test budget and then scaling up the ones that work and killing off the ones that don't. Um, you know, I think, for us, something that, especially when it's your money being spent, I mean, we, we tried working with some Facebook agencies very early on and something that I think we were pretty frustrated with was just the amount of time, you know, agencies would want just to continue to spend, like, just give it more time. The Facebook algorithm will figure it out. And, you know, myself and my partner, uh, Brock, were pretty impatient with that. Um, so we would, we'd give it a lot less time. And for us, if we could 
like see success in the first three days of a campaign, we'd kill it off and move on to the next one. And like that served us pretty well to date. Although I think, you know, over the years, Facebook algorithm has gotten better and figuring things out. Um, that was something really early on that we, we paid a lot of attention to. Yeah. So, so basically almost like looking for success sooner than later, especially when you're bootstrapping, especially when you're on tighter budgets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that was important was for the first year of the business, um, Brock and myself, we ran all of our Facebook ads in-house, um, it, which gave us a lot of really good insight and is to just like what performance baselines should be and what worked and what didn't. And, you know, an idea of some of the copy and creative that was successful. Um, so that way, when we did turn it over to an agency, we could really base like, what they were doing versus what we had already done. Right. So if they weren't performing better than we are and they're supposed to be, you know, specialized in this, it was very easy for us to make a decision of like, hey, this isn't working or not. Whereas if you never ran your own Facebook ads and you're just trusting solely, um, you know, an agency or somebody to run it for you, it's really hard for you to like kind of say like what performance and what success should look like. Yeah, I guess for for you, or maybe just in general, what is it? What what are the metrics that you that you pay attention to that you recommend other people pay attention to if you're running the 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 advertising yourself, especially on Facebook and Instagram? Yeah, for us, um, you know, we try and be profitable on first customer acquisition. So our ROAS, our return on ad spend, is kind of our key metric. So we have a you know internal KPI of what the minimum or what our break even is. On, on our return on ad spend. And as long as it's hitting break even, we will spend and tr- continue to scale it up as, as high as we can. Um, and then obviously you're always looking to outperform, but it's setting for us, it's always been setting that baseline row as, and then if things are under it, then we will you know kill it off after giving it a little bit of time. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned too about how you can sustain the success is having this good library of copy and creative that that has proven to work or that you can reference when you're creating new creative or copy that you know that can be based off of things that worked in the past. How long did you think it took you or how many how many almost like campaigns or how many assets did it take for you to get a good grasp of like what's resonating? I mean, very early on, um, like I said, we moved pretty quickly through different campaigns and ad sets um, to find what would, what would work. Um, and then once we find a, a couple key ones that do work, it's just all about scaling them up. So, you know, increasing budget, making sure like things are stable where ROAS doesn't fall off or your cost per acquisition spikes. Um, and for us, it was really that first year of just internal key learnings. And, and Brock and myself, like we, we had run Facebook ads in the past, but like we were by no means experts. And I think a lot of people that are launching their their businesses for the first time, I think Facebook ads or, you know, Instagram ads seem a bit scary. But honestly, I was, you know, just going on YouTube and Skillshare and watching what other people were doing and, and learning as much as possible so that I felt comfortable in Facebook to, you know, get that first year of learning while we're trying to keep costs down. And I think that's really important, especially for, for bootstrap companies as well. So um, I think anyone that's starting their own company and has a limited budget should be kind of doing some of these things out of the gate by them, you know, by themselves or for themselves. And there's so many tools out there now to really, you know, get a good idea and at least get the ball rolling. Yeah. And when you, when you have these campaigns, are you bringing them pretty much always to like a, a product landing page or, or where are you bringing them to from, from the ad? So we test all. Um, so we test our homepage, uh, product landing page, and collections page. 
Um, and then around holidays, we do um, like a like a gift bundles page. And traditionally, we found dropping people on our um, shop all page is is resulted in just higher conversion and higher AOV. Um, as they see, I think a few different products and add them to cart, it raises the AOV, which then of course helps your at return on ad spend. Um, but I can't say that's you know the same for everyone. We have a lower priced product, so we really need them to add a few products to their to their basket for the cost per acquisition to make sense. So I think that's why, you know, the shop all pages definitely work for us where if you had a higher price, you know, item, it probably makes more sense to drop them directly there. So I think it's a product by product basis. Got it. So this starting on the collections page has helped increase the, that, that cart, that cart value. Are there any other things that you're doing along that customer journey on the way to, to check out that has helped increase the average order value? Yeah. Upsells all the way. So, uh, First being product page upsell. So if somebody adds our, you know, our ball wash, there'll be a pop-up that suggests uh, two other products at a discount. So one being, you know, our shower sponge and then one maybe being, you know, a cologne, right? Something that's a little bit different than what they have on their, on, in their cart. Um, or yeah, it wouldn't have added to the cart. And then also on the cart page, we have a cart upsell. So again, one other supplemental item, typically at a discount, hoping that they'll add it there. And then we've also done a bit of testing with checkout upsells. So post-purchase checkout upsell. Um, so we're really trying to push that AOV at every step um, of the way. Yeah, so you, you, you mentioned three kind of stages here, upsell on the product right after they added the product to the cart, upsell on the cart itself, and then also post-purchase upsells. Was, was there any concerns or any any data that, that showed any you know, drop-off because of upsells prior to purchase? We didn't. Uh, what I will say is we had three to four different kind of upsells um, on the product page. And we scaled it back to two, right? I think it was a bit overwhelming for a customer to see, you know, so many things. And I think it's just smart to be, here's one product that makes a ton of sense, you know, as a cross sell to um, the product that's in the, in the basket. And then maybe one product that's a little bit different to get them kind of going down um, a different avenue, right? Maybe they didn't realize that we had cologne. Um, so we were always testing in the upsell, which products convert the best. Um, but we immediately after seeing, you know, or after implementing those upsells, our AOV increase. Um, so that's always been something that's worked well for us. Got it. What about things like um, encouraging returning purchases? And I, I also see that you have a subscription service as well. How has that worked for the business? Yeah, subscription has been has been great. So we've got over ten thousand ball subscribers, as we call them, which is just fantastic because you can, you know, kind of count on that revenue. Um, you can see when it's coming in, um, and that's just a great baseline every month to know. Um, so we offer a discount and free shipping on that. So we're always trying to drive uh, first time customers as well as you know past customers through email follow-ups and, you know, flows to get them to convert to a uh, subscription. Yeah. One thing I noticed is uh, on, on the product page is that there's that one-time purchase and then also um, a, a savings if they decide to subscribe. Does that, is that, is that testing, is that ongoing testing or is that proven to, to work to get people to subscribe to the, to the subscription service? Yeah, well, we've, that's, that's a really good call out. So on the product page, we do have a one-time purchase and a subscribe and save. Um, we did not see any conversion drop-off by adding that there. The thing that I 
found found interesting was we tried first leading with the subscription as kind of the default check, uh, thinking that more people would leave it as a subscription and check out as such. And then if they wanted to switch to a single uh, one-time purchase, um, they could. And we didn't see a huge uptick in subscription by going at it that way. And what we saw was an increase in just customer uh, support tickets from people not realizing that they had added the subscription. So it just led to unhappy you know, customers. So we switched it back. Um, so we always lead with one-time purchase, but it's definitely there. And you know, it's very well called out that you get 20% off and free shipping to hopefully entice them to um, add it there. The one thing that we found is it's you know much easier to kind of get somebody on the first on the, on the first purchase to subscribe than it is to convert them down the road. And we have a ton of customers that just like to buy when they want to buy. And I think, um, you know, no matter how good the deal is, I mean, we've talked to some of them, they just want to be able to purchase it when they want to. So I kind of view them as just, there's just two separate types of customers, like people that are open to subscriptions and people that aren't. Um, and I think, you know, there's some sort of su- subscription burnout now with people that are just have had too many subscriptions in the past and they get these recurring um, charges and they're not happy with it. So that's why we kind of decided to lead with the one-time purchase again. Got it. Yeah. One other cool thing I see on your, on your site that I don't see too many people doing right now is this, this almost like this video that gets, that gets played as part of the, um, I guess almost like a product demo. Is that something that you added recently or what's the, what's the kind of, um, has it, have you seen results from, from adding that to your product page? Yeah. So, um, at the end of last year, we added video to each, each, each product page. Um, it's one to kind of show, um, how to use the product or again, focus on what makes it special. Um, two, I think just video on shopping pages is just super engaging and it's not something like you said, a lot of people do. So it's a differentiator. Um, and three, I just think it makes the product feel more real, right? It's like, wow, this is actually how it works. Like it just, you know, photos are obviously great and, you know, have worked <laughs> since the dawn of time, but video is just gives you a little bit more. Um, so yeah, we took the time to kind of shoot little product vignette videos for every page and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it looks great. It seems to work well. Yeah. And the one thing that I noticed on, on a site too is like tons of reviews. What's the, the, the process to collect and, and encourage people to leave reviews on the products? Like some of them have, have almost 4,000 reviews. Yeah. So um, it, it's literally just email follow-ups. We basically send an email two weeks after um, somebody has received the product. So we give them enough time to obviously try out the product and form an opinion. And then we, if they don't follow up on that email or send a review, uh, we send a follow-up. And then every you know, review email or a request for a review rather has uh, some sort of enticement for them to do so, right? Um, if they just leave a review, they get 10% off. If they leave a video review, they get, I believe, 15% off. And same thing with a photo, right? We're trying to get them to leave some sort of UGC and um, you know, our user-generated content, which I think is just super powerful on review pages for other new customers to come on and land and see other people that have gotten it, not just the brand. Um, so we entice customers more more to do that since it's a heavier lift on their end. Got it. Do you use any specific apps to, to run that or just in general, what kind of apps do you use to help run the business? Yeah, absolutely. So we use Okendo. Um, 
for for reviews. We had used Stamped.io uh, for a long time, and they were great as well. We moved over to Okendo uh, because they've got a great Klaviyo integration, so we can kind of track um, you know those review attributes directly to the customer in Klaviyo. And then if we want to follow up with them, whether they left a bad review or a good review, it's very easy to do that or segment them very easily by by those attributes. Um, so yeah, they've been a really good partner. The other thing I like about Okendo is you can ask very specific um, questions about different attributes of your product. So, you know, for us, it's like, how does it smell? How long does it last? Um, overall value. Um, they do a really good job of capturing that. Um, other apps that we use. So for all the upsells and cross sells that I was referring to, we use an app called rebuy. Um, and we've used rebuy and their team for the last year and they've been fantastic. Um, so if you're looking for cross sales, upsells, I definitely recommend them. Um, we also do some SMS messaging and we use a company called PostScript um, for that. And they're great at just SMS you know, campaign blasts. So you want to do a promotion as well as abandoned cart or different um, you know, just upsell flows or winbacks. So we've got a lot set up there. And then one that I'm really excited about, and it's not really an app, but it's it's another you know software um, that you can you know add onto your site, but it's not through the Shopify store. It's called Exit Intel, uh, and they are basically an email and SMS capture. So we were using for Privy for a long time, and you know Privy's great, um, but they had promised some just insane capture rates, and I <laughs> I didn't believe them. Uh, you know, it's always like. I always get very uh, apprehensive when people promise like just huge numbers in terms of anything. And we decided to give them a shot and we were just astounded with how well they've been able to increase our email and SMS capture rate on the, on, on our homepage. I and mean, we're seeing about just under 30% of visitors leave us their email um, or SMS, um, which is up from about 10%, which we saw in Privy. So I can't say enough good things about Exit Intel. Yeah, 30% is definitely significant. What are you doing in the, in the follow-ups usually for email or SMS? Yeah, so it's, it's um, usually incentivized, right? So we've got, you know, a wheel and they've got a different take on, you know, I think a lot of people are using the spin to win feature, but they've just done a really good job kind of, I guess, rebranding it and just getting better engagement with it. Um, but it's a percentage off or you know, free product, but it's typically a percentage off. And then the email follow-up on that, you know, has their coupon code. Um, and then also just some more information on the brand. And then we've got kind of a automated flow um, after that, like a welcome series. Awesome. Any other changes or any other tests or any other tweaks that you made to the site over the years that have had, that have led to, to um, big changes or big increases in conversions? No, I think, um, well, we have moved to a, a headless site, so we are on Shopify Plus for you know the transactions and backend. But um, we've moved to a headless build, which is basically you know if you think of like a, a native app, so everything loads super quick, um, and that's why we're able to do video. It might be harder for somebody just on the standard Shopify to like have video load automatically like we do. Um, and same thing with like animated GIFs on the product pages. So the headless build has really helped us do that. That said, you know, it's, it's very expensive out of, out of the gate and not something I would recommend anyone do immediately. You know, I think you've got to, you know, built up the business quite a bit to want to move to that. Um, but that is, you know, it, it's, it's really helped our site speed and just uh, overall conversion. 
Awesome. So ballsybrand.com's website, B-A-L-L-S-Y-B-R-A-N-D.com. And I'll leave this last question. What would you say is going to be your biggest focus or goal for, for this year? Yeah, for us, it's always our focus is turning our gift business or gifting customers into recurring customers, right? We've got these just massive tent poles, um, November through February. And it's how do we get better and better about taking those gifting customers and turning them into lifelong ballsy customers? And that's our core focus right now. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing experience, Adam. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.